Welcome to episode number 19 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, also known as the Beretta Cast, the podcast that discusses philosophy, theology, maybe even the odd bit of politics and anything else that takes my fancy from a Christian point of view. My name is Glenn Peoples, your host. Welcome. And today we've got something a little bit different lined up. I guess every week is going to be a little bit different. We're going to be looking at a tactic, a tactic that is sometimes used mostly on the internet rather than in publications, but it is out there in some publications, generally not in uh, more serious peer-reviewed academic journals, but basically it's a tactic used to discredit historical Christianity by claiming that really Christianity was no more than a copycat religion that borrowed a savior figure from one of, or perhaps, uh, perhaps from many of the pagan religions current in the first century or even earlier. Now, there are a number of pagan religions that are sometimes appealed to as examples. Today I'm going to talk about just one of them, namely the cult of Osiris, the ancient Egyptian deity. I don't buy this comparison. I don't think that you should buy this comparison. And what I'm going to be doing today is explaining why this comparison really does not deserve to be taken anywhere near as seriously as some people take it. So, let's get underway. According to Timothy Freak, is it Freak or Freak? I'm not sure, and Peter Gandy, and I quote, The story of Jesus and the teachings he gives in the New Testament are prefigured by the myths and teachings of the ancient pagan mysteries. They say elsewhere, and I quote again, Each mystery religion taught its own version of the myth of the dying and resurrecting God-man who is known by different names in different places. In Egypt, where the mysteries began, he was Osiris. In Greece, he became Dionysius. In Asia Minor, he is known as Attis. In Syria, he is Adonis. In Persia, he is Mithra. In Alexandra, he is Serapis, to name a few. End quote. Uh, Hugh J. Schonfield likewise says, Christians remained related under the skin to the devotees of Adonis and Osiris, Dionysius and Mithra. A similar line of reasoning, and I'm multiplying examples just to illustrate that this isn't just one or two people. It is, it is out there. Some people are saying this. Uh, Lisa Bargeman, in the book The Egyptian Origin of Christianity, she says this. Oh, sorry, one of the reviewers of her book says this. She says, this book should be a welcome addition to the to-do list of all not-yet-satisfied avid readers of The Da Vinci Code. End quote. Well, I kind of agree in that it has a similar quality when it comes to historical reliability. This is what Lisa Bargeman writes. I'll quote here. As Christians celebrate Jesus, Egyptians celebrated Osiris. Both unjustly persecuted patriarchs, braving death for the glory of resurrection, attracted worshippers reenacting or going through the motions of their martyrdom. 
the Son of God appears on earth born of a woman through union of the human species and the divine. Osiris and Jesus, though just men, were betrayed by dinner guests, Jesus by Judas and Osiris by Typhon, at their own privately held banquets. Osiris was twenty-eight, Judas, sorry, Jesus, misquoting here, Jesus was twenty-three. Yes, I read that correctly. Jesus was twenty-three. Wooden trunks became their instruments of death, as well as their memorials. Upon death, their bodies were wrapped by Isis and Mary in linens, anointed with oil, and entombed. The deaths of the sons of man were re reverberated on earth in the manifestation of strange natural phenomena. Osiris and Jesus were shortly resurrected. Reassuming earthly form, they demonstratively reaffirmed right conduct and its otherworldly rewards, after which they returned to heaven, both having saved the world. Okay. Striking similarities indeed, one might think. One thing that initially strikes the reader, at least it struck me, Jesus was 23 when he was betrayed? No, he was a full ten years older than that, according to the New Testament and early Christianity, setting aside the odd mistake of Irenaeus. He was 33. But maybe this is not an indication of the general accuracy of this work. Maybe it was a one-time slip-up. If only. Creative reconstructions of the life of Osiris to match the life of Christ might seem to some although very few scholars like the kind of thing that one can get away with because, as Egyptologist J. Gwyn Griffith noted, and I quote, the pyramid texts do not provide a consecutive account of the Osiris myth, meaning that there is not one concise story like the Christian Gospels that one can consult to check. When you hear these sensational-sounding parallels, these are not like the book of Osiris that you can open and read to check against. Uh, but while ancient stories do not provide a consecutive narrative, Griffiths also notes, and I quote again, they abundantly supply in scattered allusions the principal, principal details about his fate, end quote. So there's certainly enough material available to assess the claims that are being made by the authors that I've been quoting from here. So let's take a look through the list of similarities. Something to note here is that while I think there are some decent treatments of the subject in works of Christian apologetics replying on behalf of Christianity, there is also an unfortunate tendency among some skeptics to think that just any evidence presented in the book defending Christianity will be so biased and inaccurate as to be unreliable. An ironic claim, I think, given the level of accuracy in works like the ones I'm criticizing here. But for that reason, the sources that I am drawing on for facts about the Osiris myth are sources that don't even make reference to the Christian faith, much less try to defend it. They are sources that are intended for no other purpose than serving as educational guides to Egyptology and providing information about Egyptian religion and myth. Now I'm going to use Lisa Bargeman's list of, sim list of similarities and go through each item on the list one at a time. I've identified five claims as providing crucial evidence for the alleged parallels between Osiris and Jesus. 
they were both unjustly persecuted patriarchs. They were both born of a human mother and a divine father. They were betrayed by a dinner guest, and there is a similarity in their method of execution and the object used to memorialize their death, and they both underwent the same process of resurrection. So if we put all these together, it looks like we we do have two religious figures with so much in common that some might think it plausible that the latter character is just a plagiarism being borrowed from the earlier religious figure. So let's go through this list carefully. Firstly, unjustly persecuted patriarchs. This one won't take long. Any good figure who dies at the hand of evildoers could be said to be unjustly persecuted. So I guess any martyr for any cause could be said to be unjustly persecuted. But patriarch, what does that mean here? Now, Osiris was a religious patriarch in the sense that he was the father of other gods, like Horus. But according to the Gospels, Jesus neither married nor had children. So this one just kind of comes out of left field here. It's kind of a rhetorical trick right at the beginning to say, oh, yeah, we're already seeing things in common, but really there's nothing here to even look at. Uh, Jesus wasn't a patriarch. So I'm going to move on to the next one, which is more substantial. Secondly, born of a divine father and an earthly mother. At the website EgyptOrigins.org, in an article attempting to give credence to the parallels between Osiris and Jesus, the writer actually admits at several key junctures that what is needed in the argument is lacking. Being born to a human woman is never mentioned in the story of Osiris. And in fact, he is explicitly stated to have been born to gods rather than humans. His mother is a god named Nuth. No birth to an earthly woman forms part of his story. Likewise, the idea that Osiris became human, the author at EgyptOrigins.org also admits, is implied but not explicitly stated, end quote. Sources on the myth of Osiris, the sources that aren't trying to make a, a point against Christianity, they're just looking at the myth of Osiris, say nothing about a birth to a human mother and a divine father. On the contrary, as Griffiths again notes, Osiris was presented as the brother and husband of Isis and as a member of the great Ennead of Heliopolis. And in that group, Geb and Nuth were named clearly as parents before Osiris, Isis, Seth, and Nephthys. Now this is the normal presentation in the literature on the Osiris myth. In her volume on Egyptian mythology, Veronica Ions explains, and I quote again, Nuth, goddess of the sky, was often represented as a woman with an elongated body arched over the earth. Ra seems to have been jealous and forbade Nuth to marry Geb. When she did so, he ordained that she should be unable to bear children in any given month of the year. But Thoth was sorry for her, and by playing drafts with the moon, won from him a seventy-second part of his light. This amounted to five days. Ah, yes, a seventy-second part of his light. Not seventy seconds long, but one seventy-seconds, if you like. Okay. This amounted to five days, the five intercalated days before the new year in the Egyptian calendar. 
On each of these days, consecutively, Nuth was able to give birth to a child, Osiris, Horus, Seth, Isis, and Nephthys. One more scholar for good measure. Richard Wilkinson, in his textbook on Egyptian gods and goddesses, joins the scholarly consensus, observing, and I quote, Nuth also became inextricably associated with the concepts of resurrection in Egyptian funerary beliefs, and the dead were believed to become stars in the body of the goddess. According to the Heliopolitan theology, Nuth united with her brother Geb, the earth god, to produce Osiris, and those deities associated with him in the great mythic cycle of resurrection, end quote. Now I'll say more about the idea of resurrection later, but for now, just note this. Depicting Osiris as the product of the union of a human woman and a divine father is just false. I mean, not that I believe the story of Osiris is true anyway, but it's false as a representation of the myth. And it looks like it's just been a rewritten version of the story by recent critics of Christianity, just so that the myth more closely resembles Christianity, so the comparison can be drawn. But it was simply absent in the older myth. The third point of comparison by Lisa Bajman, betrayed by a dinner guest. Now, Lisa Bajman finds it significant that in the myth of Osiris, he was betrayed by a dinner guest in the myth, Osiris's brother Seth gets a band of conspirators together and holds a dinner in Osiris's honor to lure and trap him. Now I'll quote now from a website called, uh, well it's at www.legends.egyptholiday.com and the, uh, the link will be in the show notes for you to look into yourself. But here's a summary of the myth. It says, and I quote, and at the end of the evening, Seth declared that he had a gift for one of his guests. This is at the end of the dinner. He brought forth a beautiful chest made of cedar wood from Lebanon and ebony from Ethiopia. It was inlaid with gold and silver and many precious stones. Seth cried out to his guests, I will give this chest to the one who most perfectly fits inside it. Come now and try it on for size, for it is a beautiful thing. All the guests tried the chest in turn, but some were too short, some too fat, some too tall, and some too thin. Finally, Osiris stepped up and said, Let me try. Into the chest he stepped, and it fit perfectly, for Seth had made it secretly to fit him. It is mine, Osiris cried triumphantly, just like it was made for me, as it had been. Seth stepped up to the chest and slammed the lid and locked it, saying, It will be your beautiful coffin. And he and his companions nailed the coffin shut and sealed it with lead and threw it into the Nile in the secret hours of the night. End quote. Now, is there a similarity here with the Gospel, in which Judas is one of the disciples who was with Jesus at the Last Supper, and later that night he leads the authorities to Jesus at Gethsemane, to arrest him. Yes, there is a similarity, but not much of a similarity and not a very important one. In the Osiris story, the dinner itself was the trap, and it was at the dinner that the dastardly deed was carried out, and Osiris was basically killed. He was, lo well, kind of, he, his death began, he, he was locked in the, in the coffin, then it was thrown in the river. In the case of Jesus, 
Jesus ate with Judas and the disciples every night. And Jesus was trapped after Jesus and all the disciples had left the place where they had eaten and had gone out to Gethsemane. Now, it's a similarity. It's pretty vague, though. I mean, the Last Supper wasn't set up as a trap for Jesus. They celebrated Passover every single year. And, you know, Jesus ate dinner with his disciples all the time. It just happens that it was at dinner that his, his friend went out to get the authorities to betray him. So I don't think there's much of a similarity there. Four, and this is kind of an odd one. Remember Lisa Bargeman's claim about wooden trunks? Not swimming trunks, but, you know, chests. She says that for both Jesus and Osiris, wooden trunks became their instruments of death as well as their memorials. Now, that's obviously true in the case of Osiris. He was tricked into climbing into a wooden trunk by Seth, his brother, and it became his coffin. But where's the wooden trunk in the gospel? You know, Jesus was nailed to a cross, not killed in a wooden box. In fact, even after his death, Jesus wasn't even placed in a coffin. They didn't use those. He was wrapped and laid in a tomb. This comparison has simply been created out of thin air. I mean, it's... There's nothing to connect this comment to in the life of Jesus. Uh, so I think it's a bit like the claim that, say, Mithra died and rose again, or that he had 12 disciples. It's just a fable. I mean, more of a fable than the original fable of Mithra himself. It's just been made up so that the comparison between Osiris and Jesus can be made. So I'll move on to something a bit more interesting. Point number five, a resurrection back to earthly life. What about the fact that both Osiris and Jesus are said to have been raised from the dead? I think this is the first actual substantial point on the list, and it's pretty much the last point on the list. Surely that marks a strong similarity between two figures of a dying and rising God who saves the world from death. Fair comment. Let's look at that. Osiris was said to be murdered by his brother Seth. Um, according to some versions of the myth, his cause of death was being drowned in the Nile. And then after that, uh, all versions of the myth have his body being torn into 14 pieces. To keep Isis, the wife and sister of Osiris, from finding the body, Seth scattered the body to the 14 provinces or gnomes of Egypt. So he scattered the bits of the body all over Egypt. While many texts that describe Osiris use the word resurrection, that is modern English texts that refer back to the Egyptian myths, they use the word resurrection, uh, leading some to hastily conclude that it means the same thing that the English word resurrection means in the Judeo-Christian sense of that word. That's a mistake. When the New Testament says that Jesus was resurrected, and when Christians say that there will be a resurrection of all the dead, they're actually talking about dead people, dead bodies, coming back to physical life here on earth. Now, there are a couple of different versions of the Osiris story at this point. Some say that, Os that Isis buried the body parts where she found them. Others say that she reunited them with the help of Osiris' mother, the goddess Nuth. But what all versions of the story have in common is what comes next. When the Egyptian myths speak of Osiris living on after death, they have something else in mind than what we might think of when we hear the English word resurrection. 
and the difference is so marked that I find it frustrating that authors muddy the waters by using the word resurrection at all. But it's just become kind of a convention. They do. For Osiris, he rose again all right, and is said to be alive, but he did not come out of his tomb. What do you... What does that mean? Well, he lives on as the king of the afterlife in a non-material form. His body is still buried. In his work uh, entitled Egyptian Religion, Ideas of the Afterlife in Ancient Egypt, E.A. Wallace Budge, who served, by the way, as the keeper of Egyptian and Assyrian antiquities in the British Museum, says, and I quote, The alleged dismemberment the alleged dismemberment of Osiris was forgotten in the fact that he dwells in a perfect body in the underworld, and that whether dismembered or not, he had become, after his death, the father of Horus by Isis. So this is not a resurrection to physical immortality on earth. It is a living on in the afterlife, the underworld, in fact, as the good people over at Answers.com tell us, according to the beliefs of the cult of Osiris, many people since Osiris's time have since shared in the afterlife that Osiris made possible. And I quote, At first, only the pharaohs became Osiris's on death, being identified with the god of the dead as their successors were with Horus, the son of Osiris. From the third millennium BC onwards, all men able to pass the judgment of good and evil might achieve such salvation. End quote. So, all men able to pass the judgment, a judgment incidentally carried out by Osiris, shared in the afterlife of Osiris. Now, no worshipper of Osiris was really silly enough to think that his deceased fellow worshipper had risen from the grave or that the mummified bodies of the pharaohs had escaped their magnificent tombs. They knew exactly where they were buried, but they believed that in an immaterial form they had escaped their bodily death and were now, thanks to Osiris, living on in the afterlife. Now, no honest observer can say that this is what is presented to us in the New Testament in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Belief in the survival of death in the form of, of an immortal soul while the body remained dead was common in the Jewish world and in the Roman Empire into which Christianity came. But that belief is very easy to distinguish from the belief in bodily resurrection to eternal life. The cult of Osiris taught the former, just like the Greeks of the first century. But Christianity clearly taught that the latter... Resurrection, bodily resurrection, is what happened to Jesus and is what will happen to his followers. Belief in a physical resurrection within Judaism clearly precedes the rise of Christianity and it's this tradition of belief out of which Christianity grew. This is why the Apostle Paul, when on trial in Acts 23, was able to point to a common ground that he, as a Christian, shared with the Pharisees. It wasn't the immortality of the soul. He appealed to the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. The idea of a resurrection consisting purely in a removed world of the dead without returning to physical life was something passed on from Egypt and Persia into Greek thought, and interestingly, 
while the Greeks believed firmly in the immortality of the soul, uh, they had no time for this Christian idea or this Jewish idea of resurrection. If you look at Act 17 in Paul's famous sermon on Mars Hill, when the Greek philosophers who were present heard Paul speaking about the resurrection, it, it, it specifically says because of that idea, some of them started to mock him for that very reason. They held to a view much more like the cult of Osiris, where life after death was in another world, a non-physical realm. Resurrection is something else altogether. So I think the most fundamental comparison drawn between Osiris and Jesus fails, as incidentally do all the others. Now, other miscellaneous and less substantial parallels are drawn sometimes between Osiris and Jesus too. For example, the writer at Egypt Origins uh, attempts the following parallel between the New Testament and an Egyptian hymn. Quoting from hymn 685, that's what the way he refers to the hymn, which says, The waters of life which are in the sky come, the waters of life which are in the earth come, the sky is a flame for you, the earth quakes at you before the God's birth. The author says, Clearly the earth quakes at the human birth of Osiris. He brings the water of life. Then the author quotes Revelation 21, 5-7, which says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the fountain of the water of life without payment. So he's comparing this idea of the, uh, what is it, in Osiris, it's the waters of life, and the phrase water of life appears in the book of Revelation, so he compares the two. A couple of things. Firstly, the author misrepresents the quote from the hymn about Osiris. There's no reference at all to the human birth, which is what he, the author here calls it. There's no reference to the human birth of Osiris here. The birth of Osiris was a birth to a god from parents who were both gods. There's nothing human about it. This is just an attempt on the writer's part to make the parallel more persuasive. Secondly, the hymn of Osiris is describing the earth trembling in anticipation of Osiris coming down to earth. It's literally the water on the earth that's trembling. The waters of life are no more than the rivers, lakes, and seas which give life, which are all astir just like the land and even the sky itself prior to the appearance of Osiris. But in contrast... Jesus is talking about living water that he uniquely gives to those who believe in him. We see this elsewhere in the New Testament too, like in John chapter 4 verse 10, where Jesus said to the woman at the well that he could give not merely water like the stuff that's down in the well, but living water that yields eternal life. Now I'm not going to try and mine out every single argument in the world about the similarities between Osiris and Jesus. I've covered the main ones. I'll just sum up with this. Egyptology, for some reason, has never noticed these similarities. For some reason, these similarities have been quite hidden from those most acquainted with the subject of ancient Egyptian mythology. But somehow, lo and behold, these obvious similarities are just big, plain, and clear to those who, quite apart from any interest in ancient Egypt, are determined to show that Christianity is founded on myth and that the, f the facts be damned if they get in the way of exposing this truth. It's the same when it comes to inflated and 
often simply fabricated claims about Mithra or Apollonius of Tyana or a number of other such figures. The claims sound, and it's, I guess it's the same with the Da Vinci Code, the claims sound fantastic and believable at first sight. A reading public that thrives on the sensational will hear them and be impressed. Will they go away and look into the veracity of these claims? Well, as with the readers and, and viewers of the Da Vinci Code, the answer is usually no, they won't. Because these claims are sensational, interesting, why spoil them? But the moment you do start looking into them carefully, the claims just fall apart, lacking completely in historical substantiation. If you're a skeptic listening to this, let me put it to you this way. Informed Christians should look at these claims in more or less the same way that you look on the claim, the, uh, the plainly apocryphal claim that, say, Charles Darwin recanted his evolutionary beliefs on his deathbed. He gave the theory away and accepted Jesus. In other words, if you ever feel the urge to complain about lies that fundamentalists perpetuate in the name of their beliefs, I don't ever want to see or hear you perpetuating this nonsense about how Christianity is nothing more than just a rehash of the old God-man myth of Osiris. And it's time again to look at this week in history. Let's see what happened from October 12th through to October the 18th. On October 12th, 638, Pope Honorius I, who would later become anathematized by the Third Council of Constantinople for teaching heresy in his capacity as Pope, no less, died. I wonder where the church thinks that he went. October 12th, 1492, Christopher Columbus arrives in the Caribbean. The surprise that he encountered, contrary to the myth writers of more recent times, was not that they didn't fall off the edge of the world. In fact, nobody at the time thought the, the earth was flat in the first place, but rather that they reached land so soon. Columbus, of course, mistakenly thinking that he had already reached the Euro-Asian landmass, thus thinking that he was near India, hence the mistaken naming of Native Americans as Indians. October 12, 1518, German reformer Martin Luther undergoes an excruciating interview about his 95 theses, which were posted one year earlier, with Cardinal Thomas Cajetan, is that how you say it? I'm not sure, in Augsburg. Augsburg. It was so painful, Luther later recalled, that he could not even ride a horse because his bowels ran freely from morning to night. October 12, 1531, Paul III was elected Pope. Now, Paul would play an important role in the Protestant Reformation because it was he who excommunicated King Henry VIII of England, giving official approval to the Society of, the, of Jesus, namely the Jesuits, and also initiated the Inquisition against Protestants and more way to go to help your church out. October 13th, yes, I'm being sarcastic, nothing happened on October 13th, apparently. But on October 14th, 1789, George Washington declares the first Thanksgiving Day. Actually, he signed this on the 3rd of October, but it was published in the Massachusetts Sentinel on the 14th of October. The proclamation called the nation 
to set aside that rhymes the proclamation called the nation to set aside the 26th of November as and I quote a day of public thanksgiving and prayer interestingly it became regarded by many as a day of prayer and fasting contrast that with many thanksgiving celebrations today October 15th 1844 Friedrich Nietzsche was born to Karl Ludwig Nietzsche and Franziska Nietzsche if you don't know who Friedrich Nietzsche was he was mad October 15th 1900 same day different year Pentecostal evangelist Charles Fox Parham opened Bethel Bible Institute in Topeka, Kansas I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right I never do with American names. It was here on January 1st in Topeka, Kansas, that 1901, that the first Christian in modern times was reported to have spoken in tongues. Student Agnes Osman. So there you have it. Two intellectual disasters born on the same day. Friedrich Nietzsche and rubbish theology. October 15, 1916, Margaret Sanger, along with Ethel Byrne and Fania, Fania, I'm not sure, Mindell, or is it Mindell? Don't know. Established America's first ever family planning center in the Brownsville section of New York, Brooklyn, New York, I should add. After ten days, the police closed the clinic because of the New York State 1873 Comstock Law, outlawing the dissemination of birth control information. Yeah, never mind the fact that they had no problem with killing babies. It's a bit like shutting down the gulags because they had ugly curtains. October 16, 1311, the Council of Vienne opens to decide if the Templars, a military order sworn to protect Christian pilgrims, are heretical and too wealthy. Pope Clement V decides to suppress the order. Now, this is how he suppresses the order. Its leader was burned that is, the human being leading the order, was burned, and members' possessions taken by the church. That decision was adamantly derided by the poet Dante and by later historians. Apparently it's wrong to be wealthy, so the church confiscates all the wealth and becomes, perhaps the word is exempt. October 16th, the 16th of October, 1555, English reformers Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley are burned at the stake at the order of the Catholic Queen Mary Tudor. The church likes fire, doesn't it? This is my sandbox. I'm not allowed to go in the deep end. That's where I saw the leprechaun. He told me to burn things. Before this episode draws to a close, I do want to draw your attention to a recent blog entry of mine, wherein I note that I am currently looking for a colleague. Someone who would be interested in contributing to the Say Hello to My Little Friend blog, as well as someone who will appear from time to time, if they so choose, as a co-host on this very podcast. It would be kind of cool to have a couple of people doing it. Please check out that advertisement. If you are at all interested, then drop me a line, info at beretta-online.com, or just reply to one of my blog entries and let me know that you are interested. Or use the contact form at the website, beretta-online.com. For now, this is Glenn People saying goodbye, and I will see you next time for episode 20 of... Say hello to my little friend!